During this season of Epiphany, Christine and I are preaching this sermon series called The Unnamed, in which we're looking at many, the scores, maybe hundreds of characters in the Bible who are important to the story but never get a name. Sort of gives us an excuse to follow the broad sweep of the story of God's history with God's people from Genesis to Jesus, including this story from the book of Genesis. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of that place. For we are about to destroy these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of that place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But Lot seemed to his sons-in-law to be joking. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Get up and take your wife and daughters who are here, or else you'll be, you'll be consumed in the punishment of the city. And then the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord. And the Lord overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and became a pillar of salt. And so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the plain, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when God overthrew the cities where Lot lived. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, what an odd and archaic story, huh? How is this God's word for you and me in a day like this? Well, I'm glad you asked, and I'll tell you in a minute, but the Bible sure thinks it's important. From the chronicles of the book of Genesis, this story about Sodom and Gomorrah is referred to more frequently in the rest of the Bible than anything else in the book of Genesis. Now think about this for a minute. Genesis is the book that gives us the Garden of Eden and Noah and the Ark and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Rachel and Joseph and his amazing technicolor dream coat. And yet the Bible mentions Sodom and Gomorrah more frequently than any of those. And it's easy to see why, right? Because the story of Sodom and Gomorrah has become the Bible's paradigmatic warning about the fires of hell. Behave, as Austin Powers might put it. Behave, says the Bible, or you are going to end up like the denizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we don't know exactly where Sodom and Gomorrah were located, but the best guess, because the story points out that there's nothing left, can't find anything, but the best guess is that it's down here on the southeastern corner of the Dead Sea. And many of you have been there, and so you know that the Dead Sea is the lowest land point on earth, 1,414 feet below sea level. And so the earth's crust at the Dead Sea is flimsy. Volcanic and brimstone-like activity threaten to flare up at any moment. There are pillars of salt everywhere, quite literally. And so it might be that this story of the destruction by fire of Sodom and Gomorrah might be an ancient memory of a real volcanic event that happened in this part of the world. But the point is that, is that Sodom and Gomorrah are right next door to hell in more ways than one. 
So Lot and his wife have lived there for 20 years. This is their home. They raised their daughters there. You can hear from the story. They're engaged to be married. So they're late teenagers, 16 and 19 years of age or so. Lot and his wife are in their 40s. I can't get into the details because the story is too salacious to talk about in a holy place like this. If you're interested, read Genesis 19. It reads like a racy paperback you get at Walmart. The point, though, is that God thinks Sodom and Gomorrah are so wicked that they don't deserve to exist anymore, and God's going to destroy them. I attended Christian schools, K through 12. Now, in, if you went to a Catholic school, you know they go to chapel every day. In Dutch Reformed schools, where I was educated, we went to a Bible class every day, every single day, K through 12. So I've heard this story about Lot's wife a hundred times. And so when I was growing up, I was a young kid, and my Bible teachers were talking about these wicked cities. What popped right into my mind, naturally, was Las Vegas, right? (laughs) This place famous for greed, gambling, vice, racketeers, and undressed garish floor shows. But you know what? They've cleaned the place up lately. Not entirely, but a little bit. They still gamble there. I wouldn't exactly call it family-friendly, but it is dog-friendly. In May, we were on our way, Kathy and I, from Bryce Canyon in Utah to Death Valley in California, and we needed a place to stop over for the night. And Kathy, the travel agent extraordinaire, finds out that the New York, New York Hotel in Las Vegas takes dogs. And so we stop there, and we park the car, go into the lobby, and find out that to get from the lobby to your room, The dog has to thread his way across the entire casino floor past acre upon acre of slot machines and blackjack tables. And we could barely get to our room because (laughs) people kept stopping to talk to Doogie. I guess they were far from home and missed their own dogs. They were disappointed he didn't do autographs. But I bet about 20 people took selfies with Doogie. And finally, this guy, he must have been from Nebraska or someplace, he says, who is this dog? And we said, what do you mean? This is just Doogie. And he says, well, people are making such a fuss over him, we thought he might be a movie star. (laughs) Is is he Air Bud? And and we said, no, he's, he's just Doogie. But the next morning, we had breakfast on the strip, and Doogie got his own free order of bacon. So anyway, maybe we need a new contemporary local American image for these wicked cities, but the point is God wants to destroy them, all of them, people, animals, grass, everything that lives there. There's a problem, though. Lot is the favorite nephew of God's favorite person, Abraham, the chosen one. So God does Abraham a favor and spirits Lot and his family out of the city before the Holocaust. Scram! says God. Now, says God. Don't look back, says God. But uh, Lot's wife can't help herself. Mid-stride, she glances back at the place she's lived for 20 years. First of all, of course, this blitzkrieg is like a train wreck. You can't look away, even if you want to. But more importantly, this wife in the... She's lived there for 20 years. These are her friends and neighbors who are being destroyed as she's running away. She can't help herself. Don't look back as if... But nevertheless, instantly, she is ossified into a pillar of salt. 
Could it be that some ancient minstrel spun this wild legend after seeing an odd rock formation on a hill overlooking the Dead Sea? She's not fared well in the annals of Christendom down the centuries. We were always taught that God chastised her because she refused to make a clean break with an unworthy past and an unseemly home. She refused to sprint straight ahead into whatever new future God had in store for her. That's what her uh, backward glance meant. But lately, people are trying to redeem her reputation. For instance, Kurt Vonnegut wrote his strange novel, Slaughterhouse-Five, after fighting in the Battle of the Bulge and witnessing the firebombing of Dresden in 1944 and 1945. The firestorm in Dresden covered six square kilometers and killed 25,000 people. After the Allies got done with Dresden, it looked just like Sodom and Gomorrah after God got done with them. And Kurt Vonnegut acknowledges that there must have been many vile people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Kurt acknowledges that there were many vile people in Dresden. Dresden was full of hateful Nazis. Maybe the world is better off without them. But then Kurt Vonnegut conjures the ghost of Lot's wife. He says Lot's wife, of course, was told not to look back, but she did look back, and I love her for that because it was so human. Yes, it's so human. So what does she mean, Lot's wife? Why is this brutal story in Holy Writ? Maybe, maybe she symbolizes our ambivalent relationship with the past. You know, You know what I'm talking about? So much has happened to us, good and bad. We want to leave it all behind. Sometimes we wish we could start over. If we had a do-over, we'd make different choices, right? Different education, different career, less career, different partner. Just didn't work out. We could have been a lot happier. It's like we wasted 20 years of a life that's already too short. And so all these bitter things, we wish we could leave them behind. And yet, all of these sad and bitter things, all that lost love, all those questionable choices, they're what make us who we are. And so we want to flee the wicked place and take refuge somewhere safer. But maybe not. that's not the best thing. Dash forward, but glance back. Maybe that's what Maybe God isn't rebuking Lot's wife. Maybe God is immortalizing her. There she stands forever and ever on that ridge above the Dead Sea. A symbol. Race forward, glance back. Don't repudiate your past, whatever it is. A woman is skiing with her husband in Sun Valley. Just the two of them. They're having so much fun. She's so happy. And then she wakes up and she weeps. He's been gone for six years. At least she had a few moments with him again, even if they weren't real. Sprint forward, glance back. It's a way of keeping what's dead alive. Names are so important, right? When we give someone a name, it's a way of honoring her respecting her, loving her. 
And you can tell from his poem that my hero Brian Doyle comes from a large, pious, Irish Catholic family. So many children that they had to embellish the names they were born with so that they could keep each other straight. And so, for instance, there is John Kevin, the math genius, and their sister, Betsy, God bless her. She's a nun, you see. Betsy, God bless her. And Thomas Moore, Patrick, the school principal, and Brian, the writer. And it doesn't even matter if the children are current tense or past. So there's the oldest child, Seamus, who went on ahead, whom none of his brothers and sisters have ever met. And Christopher, who died in his first hour. And their brother, Patrick, born too early, who was just halfway through his wet voyage when he was born, so he couldn't breathe. My blessed child, Patrick. And so it is that at dinner, sometimes there are five children present, and sometimes more. I suppose this happens in many families. We don't talk about it. Time seethes like the sea. But there at breakfast this morning at the end of the table was my brother Seamus who went on ahead. His mouth is filled with stars. If I close my eyes, I can see him. Race forward, glance back. It's a way of keeping the dead alive keeping our past active in the present. Time seethes like the sea. Oh, by the way, Lot's wife never gets a, a name in the story. Either the storyteller didn't know the name or he didn't think it was worth mentioning. The rabbis who came later thought this was so wrong, so they called her Edith. Edith. 